We spoke with lawyer Melissa Torres Montoya of If When How last week about the legal landscape for women's reproductive rights with the appointment of a conservative justice to the Supreme Court, the continued assault on Roe v. Wade, and all those other circumstances that add up to shape a woman's ability to have a child. And we're talking about affordable health care, housing, and more. Those are big issues that are sometimes passed off or pushed aside as if they're issues that don't affect us. That is not true. To make sure that we continue to recognize that reproductive rights is an issue that affects every single person in our country. I mean, you are here because of reproduction and you'll likely have choices in your life to make about reproduction or your children or someone you know will. And so we wanna bring you back this conversation we had with abortion provider, Dr. Jen, who puts real stories of real people into context. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. I'm excited that we're here. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Oh my gosh, we have so much to talk about. Yes, thank you. Of course. It's such a big and important topic. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about this and clear up some misconceptions. That's fantastic. I mean, our podcast is a lot about making sure that we talk about narratives from multiple perspectives. And I think one of the things that gets missed a lot in the abortion debate, you know, how does it work? So many people don't understand how it works, why a woman might actually want one. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the technicals and what your experience has been as an abortion provider. So would you please give us a little bit of background and introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. So my name is Dr. Jennifer Conti, and I'm an OBGYN that's practicing in the Stanford area. And in addition to doing general OBGYN, so delivering babies, taking out uteruses, I also specialize in abortion. So I did a fellowship in family planning, which is complex abortion and contraception, and do a lot of media work and policy advocacy work around that as well. And so it's something I feel very, very passionate about and love providing that kind of care. It's part of my job. And the reason we found you is through one of our OBGYN networks in town, and they talked about your podcast. Yes. Yeah, we have a podcast, myself and my colleague, Erica, and she's pretty much the same. She's also an OBGYN who has a background in family planning. And the idea for that podcast started after the 2016 election because, you know, everyone really upset and just sort of not knowing what to do. And as women's health providers, we were just like sort of at a loss with all the misconceptions that are out there surrounding women's health and reproductive health. She was like, you know, she's looking for podcasts about women's health. And when you Google that, basically all you can find is things about weight loss and beauty. And so she was like, this is ridiculous. We should start this. I have a background in journalism. And so I was like, we can do this. Let's do this tomorrow. And so that's what started it. That's awesome. You know, our podcast stemmed largely from our reactions from after 2016 as well. So we completely understand that motivation. So what brought you to specializing in, you know, family planning? And of course, it makes sense. Abortion is part of family planning, I guess. Yeah, it's different, I think, for everyone. So one of the biggest misconceptions is who provides abortions. And I think people are always kind of shocked to find out that a very small percentage of OBGYNs in the U.S. provide abortions. It's not all of us. And it's not necessarily that they aren't trained to do it or don't want to do it, but because of like administrative policy 
issues and political issues. Like you may have a lot of OBGYNs who are skilled and know how to do the procedures, but their facility or their practicing group won't let them like physically, you know, tie their hands essentially. So for me, it was kind of have a different story. I grew up in a very conservative, very religious household very anti-choice. And so I, until I was like 18, thought abortion was wrong. And uh, it wasn't until going into college that I realized that for having abortions, a lot of people needed abortions. I specifically wanted to be an OBGYN because I wanted to help women give birth. I'm the oldest of like 19 grandchildren and I just, birth was always present in my life. But then when I started to, you know, do volunteer work and sort of reach out into that field, I realized that it's not just birth and what was really fascinating to me is the need for reproductive health, like contraception and abortion. And then I think just like a lot of things, you go to college and your mind expands. And I realized that I was being very judgy and not kind of understanding where women are coming from or people are coming from when they need abortion. And it's just been a passion that's taken off from there. And the, I mean, you can literally change someone's life for the better in one day of no and leave a lasting impact on our life in this field. And it's just, it's very rewarding. I'm curious, because hearing that story, that's so interesting that up until, you know, 18, you were firmly, you know, anti-choice. Was there like a defining moment for you in college that you remember as being sort of an eye-opening moment? Or was it more just a gradual over time thing? I think it's a little bit of both. I think the, I mean, it's hard to remember too. It's been so long. But I think when I try to think about what was the one thing that really was shocking to me, it was, I was volunteering in a reproductive health clinic. And at that point, I, you know, all of my friends that I was hanging out with were also very anti-choice. And I remember seeing one of them come in and I'm the person who's like doing the intake because I'm just there volunteering. And it turns out that she's pregnant, even though we, you know, everyone comes for like abstinence and cell marriage. And she herself needed an abortion. And it was sort of like that eye-opening moment of, holy crap, like this is someone who, you know, sort of walks the walk in terms of abstinence. And if she needs it, then, you know, who else needs it? That was kind of like the most shocking moment for me. And then just little by little, you know, throughout college and different experiences, realizing that this is a universal truth. Women are always going to need access to all kinds of pregnancy health care, including abortion. Yeah, I, I love that that was such a personal thing for you that, you know, you realized that the range of people who needed abortions or who may need abortions was much bigger than what you had originally envisioned. And it might be someone who believed exactly like you or who looked exactly like you, which I think is so important. And that's why we love all the, you know, the different narratives. And, you know, in your introduction, I know that you mentioned that, you had done sort of a fellowship, I believe, that specialized in reproductive rights. And so, you know, one of the things that Sarah and I were really interested in is where in the process, you know, my brother is an orthopedic surgeon. So I know that medical school, there's medical school, there's residency, there's fellowship, Mm -hmm. it's like years and years of training. So where along the line did you decide to, you know, have this as part of your specialization? And I know that part of it is clinical and part of it is, you know, you're assisting with procedures. So I guess I have a two-part question. One is when you first wanted to make abortion as part of your specialties, and then when we were you exposed to actually assisting and then more, you know, handling them as part of your medical yeah. school training? I think, and I do have a story, like at this moment, it still sticks with me about being exposed to it. It was in medical school. And as part of the OBGYN rotation, um, I was scrubbed into this case where this woman was having an abortion in the operating room and she was further along in the second trimester. 
And that was the first abortion I'd ever seen. And it's important to clarify that the vast majority of abortions happen in the first trimester, like over 90%, which is a very different looking procedure than the second trimester. So it can be very jarring as someone who, you know, doesn't know what they're walking into or doesn't know what to expect to have your first experience be something that's more medically in-depth, I guess, the second trimester. And I remember sitting there watching the attending physician doing it and just kind of thinking, oh my God, like what is happening here? And I think mostly just because I wasn't really prepared beforehand. And she kind of looks back and she sees my face and finishes up the procedure. And then afterwards um, made a point to pull me aside and talk to me. And she was like, you know, how was that for you? I know that can be really hard to see because we're also OBGYNs. We deliver babies. We love moms. We love babies, you know, and we talked about it. And she said something that still lasts with me to this day. She said, I still think long and hard about this. I still dream about this. I still, it's something that as a mother myself, you know, that is very important to me, this work, but if I don't do it, who will? And that just sort of like caught me right at the heart. I was like, oh my God, you know, you're right. Like, and it's not to say that like, now I have to go out and tour. Everyone does it, but I saw in that moment that it wasn't just about an issue, you know, abortion. It was about this woman, for whatever reason, she was having the abortion. I can't even remember so long ago, Um, but she needed help. And she had been through, you know, so many different providers and steps and hurdles to find this help. And there are so many few people who will help her in this time of need. And she was one of them. And so that was kind of like mind blowing. Yeah. Well, and I love what the OB who was doing the procedure said to you. I mean, those, yeah. you know, if I don't do it, who will? I can see why the, that stuck right. with you. And well, and I love that she took the time too. she saw your face because this was in medical yeah. school. This was, you know, and it was your first exposure and that she talked to you about that. Because one of the questions that we had about this was, you know, you were exposed to this in medical school. So what is taught in medical school about abortions, especially if you're choosing this specialty? You know, is it technical? Does it deal with the emotional, mental side of it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It varies so much depending on where you are in the country. So a lot of medical schools won't really have much, and if any. And so I was fortunate. I went to UCSF. San Francisco is a very progressive place, obviously. And so there was a lot more taught than I think most people experience. But most of it is technical because you're speaking to a group of people who could go on to be orthopedic surgeons or, you know, whatever. So it's a lot of it is just technical. But then once you get into an OBGYN rotations like this experience, you have some of those more personal experiences, emotional, mental uh, teaching that happens on the one-on-one kind of level with attendings residents. And then the teaching is obviously different. Once you've decided to go into that field, you're a resident. There's like actually a national standard now in place for the U.S. where all OBGYN residents need to be exposed to abortion teaching. But the problem is that can be interpreted a bunch of different ways. So if you're in a religious-affiliated residency, obviously it may not look the same way it does um, or should look if you're not. And so I feel like it wasn't until residency really that I started to realize just the many levels of reproductive health care and how a lot of us who are in this work, it's not just about the clinical care there. Like most of us are very, very involved in policy and advocacy. So it's more than a job. It's like passion, a life passion. 
Yeah, I think that is really interesting because we, you know, on a very different level, we had talked about how you're exposed to different things in different ways or how you might be exposed to the same thing in many different ways, like our textbook standards across the U.S. are very different. So it's interesting, yet not, I guess, surprising to understand that that happens in medical school in the same way when you're talking about a procedure like abortions, where there are the religious context makes it very different and how people provide them and what they're going to say about them. And then I guess, you know, since you are an abortion provider, I think we'd also like to understand, you know, what is then is required of you to, you know, in that fellowship and that specialty so that you can get to the point of being able to perform an abortion. Right. And again, most of it, like you could walk out of residency um, at most residencies and know how to do abortions up to a certain point. But the fellowship training is actually it's in the process of changing as we speak, it's going to be called complex family planning. And it's going to be something that very specifically hones in on really complex cases. So cases that are later on in gestation. So, you know, maybe over 20 weeks or in women who are very sick, maybe who have heart conditions or other conditions that would make even just an earlier abortion procedure really complicated for them. I forgot to rest your question. <laughs> to answer it. No, it does, I think, because, and, you know, I guess we should have asked another question beforehand, which is, can you tell us a little bit more about the fellowship, you know, because it is a changing fellowship and it's, 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 it sounds like a unique fellowship. I think we'd love to understand more about that. Yeah. And well, I'll say too, it's relatively new, maybe 20, 30 years ish. And it's not a situation where someone needs to do a fellowship to do abortion. In fact, the majority of abortion providers in the U.S. haven't done a fellowship. But this is sort of a way, um, it started, I guess, as a way of people out of residency becoming specifically skilled in like research surrounding family planning and becoming scholars in the field. So, you know, 30 years ago or whatever, there wasn't a lot of data or medical research into this field that was considered very taboo. And the thought was that if we can sort of bulk up the medical literature around family planning, safe practices, and now even policy, that potentially you can increase access and, you know, safety. What we're finding is that a lot of people don't care about science in this day and age, you know, and so a lot of the fellowship now is sort of morphing into, well, still very heavy with the science schools, but a lot of focus on policy now to fight back against what's happening in our current government or legislative environment. But it's two extra years beyond OBGYN residency. So you finish your residency and then you have an extra two dedicated years that are where you actually get a master's of public health and epidemiology. You're taught how to do this kind of research and how to interpret the literature more and how to do these complex cases. So I have a question then, because you're taught all this stuff and it's intellectual and you see, you know, when we're talking about all the changing legislation that might be coming up from a doctor's perspective and what you see that reflected on your patients, in your opinion, you know, stuff like you need to make some of the stuff I've heard is like in certain places, you need to have the mom listen to the heartbeat and you have to have a, you know, there's a lot of stuff now that has been developing. How do you effective do you think that is or ineffective? Can you talk to me for, as a provider, how you see the impact of these potential changes? Yeah, I think when you're talking about harmful legislation in general, and the reason I call it harmful is because it's not a matter of being effective or not. It does nothing to it generally, um, including things like making the woman listen to the heartbeat, making her wait a certain number of hours before the procedure, making her have it in a certain type of facility with certain, you know, length hallways. Like you name it, they've thought of the crazy legislation. None of that increases the safety of the procedure. None of it. It has nothing to do with making procedures more safe or accessible. 
In fact, the opposite. The entire point of it is to make it harder for providers to continue practicing, for facilities to continue functioning, and for people to facilities and providers provide that kind of care. It, I mean, it's very, very strategic what their, the antitrust side is doing. So yes, I feel very strongly about these being sort of nonsense laws and being very thinly veiled in this, you know, purported concern for women's health and women's safety. It absolutely is not. They are not. And they're very, very clearly religiously and, uh, you know, politically motivated. Um, so that's unfortunate because you don't see that in any other type of medicine, right? Usually medicine is medicine and people who are not doctors usually stay out of the exam room. But for some reason with abortion care, people, politicians, people who have no business practicing medicine insert themselves very, very deeply. As someone who has sort of understood that perspective growing up and has changed to this side, if you see it as two sides, how do you make sense of that? Like coming, you know, knowing so many people who held that perspective before. Yeah, I think it's ignorant. And I say it in sort of the kindest way, because I don't mean to say that someone is stupid or, you know, hasn't thought thoughtfully about it. Because certainly when I was anti-choice, I thought that I had thought very thoughtfully about the way I felt and had, um, you know, conviction. And so I, when I'm talking to residents, for example, or people who I'm teaching about abortion, I try to instill this level of compassion because I do feel compassion for people who, some people who are anti-choice, you know, there are a lot of people with, so they've done studies on this. When they look at people who are sort of on one side or the other, you know, it's not very black and white. There's a whole spectrum. And the vast majority of people are somewhere in the middle. There are always going to be people who are just very, very staunchly pro-choice, very staunchly anti-choice and just won't budge no matter what kind of life experience they have or, you know, who they meet, who they talk to. But the vast majority of people are sort of open to understanding that life is not black and white. Abortion lives in the ground um, and that there are always going to be situations where even if it's not wanted, so, you know, I really, I feel compassion for people and I feel that shift from one side to the other or from at least a little bit over on the scale happens when you have a firsthand experience, either with someone who's gone through it or yourself um, or some other experience that just makes you realize that we're all human and, and that it's not in anyone's best interest to judge people for what they're going through and how they deal with it, but to instead try to understand that their situation may look very different than yours. And until you've sort of walked in someone's shoes and understood everything they're going, you really have no business telling them what they should or shouldn't do, you know, just because you wouldn't have one personally doesn't mean that they shouldn't either kind of thing. Well, and I want to come back to some more questions about why you think women get abortions. But let's come back to how you're when you're dealing with a patient who wants an abortion and you yourself, you know, putting myself in that perspective that you mentioned of the practitioner at the very beginning of your story who where you witnessed your first abortion you know what goes through your head before during and after you know your head or your heart emotions like how do you do deal with that yeah it very much depends on the person in front of me and what's happening so it's again like i keep going back to this it's not black and white some people arrive at the clinic needing an abortion because of poor timing poor pregnancy planning and timing and Maybe they were using contraception effectively and it still didn't work. Maybe they weren't and life happens. And sometimes that interaction with them is just, um, you know, just conversational, like very factual. And that's fine. You just sort of go with the flow and you, you know, talk to them through their situation. But sometimes it can be very emotional. Sometimes it's a very wanted pregnancy 
and there's a fetal anomaly, maybe something that's not compatible with life, something with the woman's health that if she continued the pregnancy would be very dangerous for her. And those encounters take a lot out of you. I mean, very emotional. And I can't count how many times I've sat in a room and held a woman who, you know, five seconds before it was a total stranger. And you can imagine doing that over and over and over. Like there was, I mean, I can remember like, it's not uncommon that we'll have maybe like three or four of those cases back to back and you're spending at least an hour with each patient. And so that's essentially like four to five hours back to back in an afternoon, just crying with people, living their trauma. And I'm not saying I feel the same way as they do, you know, but it's really heavy work that we do. Um, I think the thing that's going through my mind universally in all those situations, regardless, is one, just because person is appearing a certain way to me doesn't mean that that's the full picture. Crying or not, that doesn't mean that she's not feeling a certain emotion. Two, she doesn't have to feel a certain emotion about this, right? People feel different ways about abortion and pregnancy and all kinds of health issues. You know, if you aren't feeling bad or guilty about something, it doesn't mean it's the wrong emotion. And three, and I think this is something I've learned with time, it doesn't matter why she's having the abortion. And I don't ask. I never ask. A lot of times it comes up, but it doesn't matter because I am not the gatekeeper of abortion. I'm the person who talks to them about how to do it safely and who, if they don't want to have abortions again in the future, talks to them about how to prevent it with effective contraception. Knowing why they have the abortion doesn't do anything to help me provide uh, safe, effective, compassionate care. It only instills this idea that I'm judging them, which in fact is a barrier for safe and effective care. That's so well put, because I don't think anybody goes in there. Nobody goes into a doctor's office wanting to be judged, especially when you're talking about some of your most private, personal body parts and emotions and everything. Can we get specific? This is like the nitty gritty, right? That some people don't know, like, how are abortions done? And through that, could you remind us, you know, at what age a fetus can survive? Like, just put it into context in the whole spectrum of conception to viability. Yeah. Again, lots of gray. So the way that abortions are done varies a lot depending on how far along someone is in the pregnancy, depending on where they live, right? Because we have a situation in this country where we have access by zip code. So if you're in the South, you may not even have access to the same type of abortion that someone in California or New York. But in general, there's two types. There's medication versus what we call surgical, but really it's just a very simple, safe procedure. It doesn't even need to be in the operating room a lot of the times. And with a medication abortion, it's two pills that you take um, and they both work together to make the uterus contract and essentially cause a miscarriage. And that people are, again, depending on where you are in the country, they'll do it to certain gestational ages, but this along we're doing it right now is about 10 weeks. So at 10 weeks or less, you can choose to have a medication abort. You can also choose to have procedure and that's called a D. NC or dilation and curatage if you're in the first trimester, or it's called a D&E, dilation and evacuation, if you're in the second trimester. And both of those are just variations of the same thing, which is with medications or with little plastic dilators, helping the cervix to very gently open slowly over time, and then using an instrument to remove the pregnancy 
And they're called different things just because you use different instruments and different types of medications, depending on how far along the pregnancy is, just in keeping with whatever is safest for that woman, for her uterus, so that she can go on to use it again in the future if she so chooses. So further along in the second trimester, there's also the option of doing a medication procedure in something called an induction termination, which is essentially a fancy way of just saying that if the person does not want to go through a procedure, and provided that there's a labor and deliver unit that will allow her to do this, because a lot of parts of the country won't, um, she can go to labor and delivery and essentially get the same kinds of medications that she would get if she were you know, full term and just trying to open the cervix to deliver the baby, but in a way that will help her to terminate without a procedure. And again, this is so variant depending on where you are in the country. Um, in general, the states that will allow procedures up until what? Roe v. Wade sort of solidified, usually go up to about 24 weeks. And then, of course, there are situations, very, very nuanced, rare situations. We're talking less than 1% of the time where beyond that, only if the fetus has like life-threatening abnormalities or the mom has something that, you know, a condition that continuing the pregnancy would threaten her life would go on to consider an abortion. But that is, despite how sensationalized that got like in the last year in the news, that's incredibly, incredibly rare and does not happen that often. What are the after effects for the woman for any of these procedures or medications? Yeah. Do you mean like physically, emotionally, or? Let's start with physical, because I would imagine, I mean, if anything is simulating a pregnancy and after you give birth, in case people don't realize, like women bleed for a month after you give birth, if you give a full-term birth. So I assume when you have trauma to that region, you will have physical effects. You know, can we talk a little bit about what a woman physically goes through after this procedure or these different options? Yeah, and it depends on if you're doing medication or a procedure, but in general with both, you're going to have some cramping and light bleeding that we keep an eye on for a while. And then if you are further along, this is something we talk about too, but if you're further along, like in the second trimester, you might even start to feel like some of the effects of like the milk coming in, even that can still happen with them if you're in the second trimester. With all of those situations though, the ideal situation is that you've got follow-up with the provider who you've been seeing so that, you know, regardless of what happens, you've got someone who can sort of check in and make sure everything's fine. But, you know, I like to say, so abortion, regardless of how you have it, medication or procedure is incredibly, incredibly safe. Just to put it in perspective, 14 times safer than giving birth at term. So we talk about these side effects like bleeding, cramping, anything else you may be experiencing. But it's the incidence of something really bad happening is much, much less than, than giving birth all the way at term. That's interesting. I had no idea. <laughs> Yeah. That well, statistic think, is amazing. I think it's sort of blown out of proportion, you know, right? Especially with when you have a side that's reporting quote unquote sex and they have sort of a pony in the race, like they're trying to make it appear a certain way. They're trying to make it appear dangerous. So of course they're going to just kind of conflate the data in a way that makes it sound alarming. But you need to compare that to the alternative and the alternative is birth, right? Continuing the pregnancy and birth, which actually, I mean, no one warned you about this and Pregnancy and birth is one of the most dangerous things that a woman can do to her body. But no one warns you or counsels you about that as, you know, it's, it's expected. Women are meant to, to gestate and be mothers, essentially. But it is one of the times in life where you're sort of putting your body under the most stress and the most risk. Well, and we did that interview with a OBGYN who talked about black maternal health care and the maternal death rates and how they're so disproportionately high compared to oh, yeah. women who identify or identified as white. So, yeah, I mean, I guess pregnancy and all of it is really, really risky. 
can we talk a little about the mental and emotional state then? Because so many people yeah. and opponents paint it as like, women just don't feel like using birth control and they just want to breeze in and get the baby killed and they're just so cruel. But that's not the understanding I have of it. Yeah. This idea, like, I'm always shocked when legislators or people on the anti-choice side sort of paint this picture, but I'm shocked by the people who buy that crap. Because do you know anyone in your life who would want to just go and get pregnant just to end the pregnancy? Or who would want to voluntarily go through an abortion, which can be uncomfortable, like physically uncomfortable and painful and and emotionally distressing sometimes, not always, you know? But first of all, who would do that? And second of all, do you know any doctors who like are trying to end people's wanted pregnancies? Like this just doesn't exist. So the fact that, you know, when they were sitting around that round table, like trying to think of strategies to convince women not to have abortion, like who came up with this and thought it was a good idea to try? Because like, what the hell? <laughs> people, you know, like just people aren't like that in real life. But nevertheless, it's something that you do see or do hear. You hear this idea that women are, you know, flippant and just not, you know, they don't care about their choices. In all my years of doing this, I've never seen someone who's flippant in the clinic room. And I think people arrive at these decisions for a variety of reasons and in very thoughtful ways. They know what's best for their life. They know what's best for their family's lives. And we say the majority of people who have abortions, more than 50% are already mothers. They're making these decisions for their families, you know, for so that they can continue to provide and, you know, for the children they already have. But taking that one step further, I would say, even if you did have a situation where someone was flippant, who cares? I mean, again, it's going back to that judgment issue. And who am I as a physician to determine if someone is flippant or not? That's not in my, you know, medical wheelhouse. I, I wasn't trained to do that. And it's just irrelevant, you know. I love that part because... I feel exactly the same way that you do, I'm even not as a medical professional, and that I think people, the judgment that we place on people's choice in having an abortion and all of the reasons why they might do it or, you know, and all of the reasons, you know, that the doctors should not be doing that is just putting a lot of parameters on something that is very gray and that is that you can't do that. On. Right, and, right. Yeah. I mean, you can put those parameters on your own life. Absolutely. Right. I think for sure. And I want to say too, like anyone's allowed to feel however they want to feel. I will never tell someone that they've got the wrong feelings or or ideas about abortion for their own life. That's for your own life. And so I think that extends even to the gray area where we start to involve like religion and God and morality and all of that, that it's very, it's a very sticky area with abortion because um, there is no universal moral or religious truth, right? We have tons of different religions out in the world. We have tons of different belief systems. And so to say that that's the reason why abortion is wrong is also assuming that everyone else should subscribe to your religious and moral beliefs, which is ridiculous, you know? I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) Given that in your experience, you've never seen effectively like a flippant person come in and that it does tend to be a thoughtful consideration. What do you see is helpful for women to have in the way of support systems for people who want or need or have had them? Yeah, well, I think, and there's a lot of research to do, like does abortion cause depression, suicidality? No. And in fact, there's a group out of Oakland um, called ANSWER, A-N-S-I-H-R, and they do a lot of research into what happens when women who want abortions are not granted them. And those are the women who are most at risk of depression, suicidality, a lot of issues with, you know, future family mental health. So that's, I think, the grade to be questioning. But 
I think the thing that is most protective in general, because you are going through potentially a hard emotional time, you know, again, people don't want to have abortions. It's not like it's something you set out to do. But I think the thing that's most protective is family and friends who understand and who are not judging. Unfortunately, not everyone has that. There are groups out there that provide just that to people who don't have it. So one that comes to mind and that I always recommend for patients is called TalkLine or All Options. I think they just recently changed their name. And if you go online to their website, like alloptions.com, you can see there's 1-800 number that you can call and just get support, non-judgmental support for any kind of pregnancy outcome, whether it's keeping a pregnancy and you're having a hard time, adoption, terminating a pregnancy, not just for the people going through it, but for their support system, because this can be hard, you know, laterally as well on anyone involved. And just sort of providing that protective service to people you know, who may not have it. I mean, I have a question about asking you to sort of walk us through a story about an abortion you performed. Is that possible to just explain something that in a little bit more detail so people can not imagine it, but kind of imagine it and understand the process? Um, I'll do two stories. The one is of a young woman who, you know, just started having sex and she thought she was um, on birth control. She was using the pills. She had gone to her doctor and was counseled on how to take it. But then right before she got pregnant, she had gone on a trip, an international trip and was taking her pills. But with the time, she just, you know, um, took the pills at a different time. And that small shift was enough to make it less effective. And so she got pregnant even though she was doing what she was supposed to be doing to protect against that. And so she came in and we talked about all her options. She was very early on. She was like only eight weeks pregnant. Um, and she ended up choosing medication abortion, took the first pill in the clinic, took the second pill 24 hours later, like we recommend and went home within a couple hours, had some bleeding, cramping, uncomplicated, very, very simple procedure. And then came back a week later, procedure was done. We put her on a different, more effective type of birth control that wouldn't um, shift with the time change because that was what was important for her. And she went on. And that story is very indicative of the vast majority of abortions. And that they very, I mean, the vast majority look just look and sound just like that. That's, that's the story you'll hear. And I'll tell you another story just as a complex abortion provider. This is something, again, not many people and not many abortion providers also are privy to because procedures for a long and happen against them. Um, but this is the story of a woman who had two children already. This was her third pregnancy. Very, very desired. And she had gone to her OBGYN who had ordered an ultrasound around, you know, the middle of the pregnancy as we typically do. So like 20 weeks. And at that point, find a bunch of different anomalies or abnormalities with the, and they didn't have like a clear diagnosis, but there were so many things going on that it was very clear this baby was going to have a really hard time, um, struggling to breathe. And when it was born, if it went to a religious family, Catholic, which just interesting side note, the majority of people who have abortions are, are religious or identified. And so she had gone to her OBGYN who had referred her to a specialist. She got second, third opinions. Everyone was saying the same thing. This baby is really not going to make it. And she's heartbroken. And so she gets her. And before coming to me, she had met with her priest. And this story sticks with me because it was just so surprising to me. And also is so heartwarming. The priest, the Catholic priest, who just, you would never expect this from a Catholic priest, said to her, you need to make the decision that's right for your family. You know, I wish it wouldn't be abortion, but I completely understand that that maybe is maybe right. And God is a loving, compassionate God, and I will help with this. And for them, it was very important to try to baptize or give a 
spiritual ceremony to this baby that wasn't going to make it. And so he actually went with her. He went to see me. Uh, she went to see me some holy water and asked me to give a little blessing. Like this Catholic priest who I don't know, the OBGYN, who is also the abortion provider, to use this holy water on his church and bless this baby after the procedure. And I did it. And, that, and it was just so moving because, I mean, I'm not Catholic myself, but I can understand and respect this person is. And that this is the hardest thing she's ever gone through. And that for her peace of mind and for her family's, you know, well-being, this is the thing that uh, would make her feel the most cared for and loved and supported. And I felt very, very honored to be able to support her in that spiritual sense. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it seems like a little strange. And again, I don't think you'll hear a story similar to that word, but these cases that are very, very, and that have, you know, um, very traumatic things associated with them are often cases that are surrounded by a lot of love and compassion from outside, from, from the people taking care of her. I love that part. Your second story, I mean, I understand that your first story is very typical of, you know, a typical sort of abortion scenario, but that second story with the priest and the holy water. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. so unexpected yeah. and so powerful. So yeah. unexpected. Right. I mean, it was like this moment where I am like, here's this person who the Catholic church is very staunchly anti-choice, right? That's just the thing. But here's this person who's like so high up in the Catholic church and who still understands that one of his parishioners, one of these people who he is, you know, um, tasked to care for spiritually, mentally, and, and needs help in this way. And like, it's this still a stranger to me, right? But it's this moment of like connection between me and a Catholic where I'm like, wow, we're on the same page here. You understand that this is, no one wants this about love and compassion. I mean, I think that's the crux of it, right? It, n- nobody wants this, but if it's a need in society, let's provide it safely. I've noticed you've called it anti-choice this whole time versus pro-life, which I find interesting. Exactly. And I never thought about the difference there, but I think there's significant. Well, because I'm pro-life. I know for sure. I think that the anti-choice side, because that's what it is, right? They are anti-having, has sort of taken on this title of being pro-life. I cannot say that I'm anti-choice. Definitely not. But they can say that they're pro-life, sure. They can't say that I'm not pro-life. I absolutely am pro-life. I'm not, you know, I'm an OBGYN. I deliver babies. I'm a mother. I'm a human being. I am not about killing anyone, so to say, you know. So to take on that title as if you're the only one who feels that way is very manipulative. So we've just done away with it. Like everyone's pro-life. There's only pro-choice and anti-choice. I really like that too. Seems to best sort of summarize the debate, really, when you think about the opposing yeah. Over something that is gray, really. So, yes. Right. And I think I've always said I'm okay with people having this anti-choice, valuing, you know, this idea of life. But then I've always found this inconsistency with then are people out there truly supporting the quality of life of these children who are born. And, you know, to me, it has to be consistent. So I like that idea of taking mm-hmm. the quality of life, you know, that out of the conversation and really having it be about the whether you're going to be willing to give women choice. It's about abortion. It's not about life. And the other thing, I mean, that's getting into a whole other thing, too, about that. If you walk the walk, at least, right? Like if you're going to say you're anti-choice, then you should be a comprehensive contraception. You should be handing it out. You should be like promoting it in every way, not making that harder to get also. And you should be about, like, you know, 
children's health. Like that's a whole other issue with like health insurance for children. There's so many children who are uninsured. There's so many like children who are just not being supported in all the ways that we should be supported in terms of violence in the home. And I mean, let's not even get into the children who are in cages at our border. Like, it's, just, it's very inconsistent. Okay. I love that you mentioned insurance because we are actually going to talk about insurance as our next episode. But you know, I know you're in California, just like I'm in California. And on Friday, when President Trump came out with his statement or, you know, the all the news broke about how he was threatening to cut federal funding for California in some ways or that California was submitting yeah. was, you know, violating health services. Right. For yeah. requiring private yeah. insurers to cover abortion. I was wondering if you had any right. you know, immediate reactions to that. Yes, I think he is trying to do the same thing. His administration is trying to do the same thing that they did to Planned Parenthood with Title X. So essentially with the Title X funds, they said, if you're a clinic or a facility that provides abortion as part of your care, I don't care if you're doing also pap smears, mammograms, anything else, you know, to provide health care. If abortion is a part of it, and not even just doing abortion, but talking about abortion, then we're going to take away your funding. And so they're trying, and it worked essentially for them, right? They um, Planned Parenthood eventually was put up against the wall and they said, okay, well, we're not ever going to stop doing abortions because people need it. So fine, take away the money. We'll find other ways and you're just going to hurt other people, you know. But essentially, they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to, this is the first we've heard of it, to say, okay, fine, California as a whole, if you, you know, keep requiring your private insurers to cover abortion, we're taking away money from you. And it's just, it's a bully, right? Like he's being a bully. It's a bully thing to do. Just And also he hates California, so he'll just, you know, try to do anything to to this state. Oh my gosh, Sasha! She and I literally just had that conversation when we were talking about the conversation about insurance. You actually had a paragraph in there about how much Trump hates California. So that's kind of funny. Yeah, Sarah made me delete the part about how much Trump hates California, yeah. but it's very true. He really does hate our, the state. He, so He does. He yeah. really does. Is there anything else? I mean, I feel like we could talk for so much longer because it is a heavy topic. It's such a real topic. It is so critical. This country is majority women. Like we're just over 50% of the population, right? It is an issue that affects the majority of us. And I just feel like it's so under discussed. And I'm really grateful that you made time to talk to us today. And I'd love to be able to reach out to you again if we have other questions in this space. But I really, really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, I think the one thing I would add, just because we haven't sort of touched on yet, you know, we talked about racial disparities in maternal morbidity and healthcare during pregnancy, and that extends to abortion care also. There are huge, huge racial disparities with abortion access. I mean, we class like versus along, you know, states that are red versus states that are blue, but we have huge populations of African-American women, Latino women, women of color living in those red states and living in socioeconomically impoverished places where maybe they you know, don't have as much access to abortion care providers. And so absolutely, you see women of color having a harder time getting access to abortion, having been, I guess, more prone to all of these anti-choice legislative harmful laws. And so it's a whole other element of this that we didn't really touch on much, but it's a huge, huge issue. I mean, it's we're a racist country and it doesn't stop at reproductive health care. 
I love that you said that because we, an earlier episode, talked about, you know, the Supreme Court case that's coming up in March and how it highlighted that there are three, you know, abortion clinics in Louisiana right now. And if you think about the state of Louisiana and how big it is and how, you know, people from other states were driving there. So you've got hours of driving to maybe have access to a safe abortion and that there is such a disparate impact there on people so both through socioeconomic disparity and racial disparity in going back to, you know, does making it harder yeah. make abortion more safe? It does not. It actively works against that. So I love that you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to echo our thanks. I mean, this is such a big, big topic and something that we are so thankful that you have been so candid with us. And, you know, I learned a lot today. So thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I am so happy to, you know, to talk about this and and share. It's hard to talk about sometimes, but I think that's really important that we don't shy away from this topic and that we talk about it because everyone's thinking about it. And then not everyone has the space or ability to have conversations in their daily life with it. So it's whenever we can have those conversations with our friends, family, like, please do. Again, like I said, I come from a very anti-choice family and um, or did. I was able to convince my father, who's still very Republican, voted for Trump, but at least he's actually pro-choice now. He's changed his mind on that topic. So you can absolutely move the needle just by talking. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 